Hey there, and welcome to Health Yeah with Gene O'Connor, the president of the board of directors for the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors. You can find more information about NACDD at chronicdisease.org. As always, I'm Joseph Rhodes, your friendly podcast producer. Hey there, everyone. Hope you're doing well. On this episode, Gene is speaking with Dr. Soma Stout. Now, Dr. Stout is one of the vice presidents of IHI, and that's the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. And she also serves as the executive lead of 100 Million Healthier Lives. And it's a great organization, and we're going to be talking all about it. So without further ado, let's begin. Welcome, uh, Dr. Shamova Stout, to the NACDD podcast series on population health improvement. We're excited to have you join us. I'm Jean O'Connor, and I'm the current president of NACDD and a state-level public health practitioner. I'll be your host today. So, Dr. Stout, you're the executive lead at 100 Million Healthier Lives, which is convened at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Can you tell us a little bit about your organization and what you do? Um, certainly, Jean, and thank you so much for having me uh, on this podcast. So, um, 100 Million Healthier Lives was convened out of a recognition that in order to truly improve population health, well-being, and equity in this country, there was no one organization that was going to be able to do it alone. So, 100 Million Healthier Lives is described as an unprecedented collaboration of change agents at every level. That's people in communities, organizations leading change, and people working all the way at the policy and systems level to improve health, well-being, and equity. Our mission is to say, if, if we all come together in an unprecedented collaboration, if we change the way we think and work to improve health, well-being, and equity, could we challenge ourselves to support 100 million people to live healthier lives by 2020? Yeah, that's really interesting. Can you elaborate a little bit more? I mean, tell us how you're doing that. It sounds really interesting, but I think for all of us who work in chronic disease, prevention, we know how challenging that can be. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, so much of what we do is by looking at where the gap is in the field and what would be needed to close that gap. So um, as we think about sort of what we do, a lot of what we do is um, help people in communities to think about how to do their work differently. So an example might be um, for all those of us who are working in chronic disease, we usually take a particular lens to that work. For the person who's experiencing chronic disease, there may be many other, all of our lenses may be colliding in their lives or they may intersect, but not with reference to one another, which can be confusing. So we know, for instance, that chronic disease outcomes are directly linked to the social determinants of health that are driving those outcomes, and those are directly linked to the policies and systems that are underlying a place. There are very few places where we can come bring all of that together. And so part of what we do is help communities to think about how to work across sectors, starting with who is who are the people who or the population that's experiencing chronic disease, as an example. What would it take to really change 
outcomes that in a way that takes a whole person view that says, you know, if you are a 67 year old Spanish speaking diabetic who lives in a particular neighborhood, your needs, your assets, your access to resources might be substantially different than uh, another person's. And so given who you are and the, uh, for, for a a group of people, how can we think about who needs to come together, you know, building on the assets of that particular place or community to help think about what it would take to come together and build that unprecedented collaboration on the ground. And so a lot of what we do is build a capability of change makers across sectors to bring their pieces together to take on what might be a combination of a behavior change, a policy change, and a, a change in measurement to improve chronic disease in a way that understands the intersection of the physical disease, the mental health issues, and the social determinants that might be driving that disease. And then as we sort of help people apply an improvement lens to that, to not only co-design with people who are most affected, but to actually see whether things have improved, we then have a system for the bright spots to scale, as well as, you know, where we take a a look at where there are already bright spots that we might um, support the scale up of in partnership with organizations across the country. So that just gives you one example for in the area of chronic disease where we might say, how can the efforts of many organizations come together at the mesosystem level or at the macrosystem level to support uh, breakthrough outcomes? But imagine that that is replicated in all the other ways in which population health is, is being thought about or happening. There are people who are thinking about mental health, about aging, about healthy children. Um, and there are people who are doing that kind of thinking across sectors, often using different language, different frameworks, and different populations that they reach. And some of what we do is help create an ecosystem where people who are interested in working in a common area across sectors can come together, can sort of connect what they each mean by something and learn each other's frameworks and then come up with some common ways of thinking about leading to and then testing and improving and scaling the work together. That sounds terrific. So, I, you know, and you, you started to answer what was going to be my next question was really about how that work relates in your mind to population health overall. And I, I think you've answered that. But one of the things I'd love to hear you talk about a little bit is when you say population health, what does that mean to you? I mean, there are many different definitions being thrown around out there. And so what, what, does it, what does it mean to you and what does it look like if we're really doing it well? Can you describe maybe an example? Sure. Happy to. You know, I think where people often get stuck is they either think about populations as people or they think about populations as people who belong to a place. And in reality, Population health is an intersection between the health and well-being of people, the health and well-being of the places or the environments in which people are, and frankly, the underlying systems of society, as we would put it, that are um, driving those outcomes. And it's really at the population health, well-being, and equity, at least improvements in that, really lie lie at the intersection in our mind of all three of those things. You know, and all of them, equity is sort of cross-cutting when we look at where there's the opportunity for the greatest opportunities for improvement in population health. So an example might be if you were to look at 
take diabetes as a chronic disease. You know, if you were to think about what's happening in terms of diabetes outcomes, you might think about a population as uh, the group of people who have diabetes. And depending on what your lens is as an organization that's working in this space, if you're a business, you might think about that as it relates to diabetes in your employee population. Or if you're a healthcare organization, you might think about it from the perspective of diabetes in in your patients uh, or or their families. And if you're a public health department practitioner, you might think about it as diabetes as it relates to a particular community that you are responsible for for a place. But in reality, the employees of, of a business live in particular places. Places are are variable. Some of them have um, great access to food and walking environments that would promote healthy living and others don't. And similarly, people who are patients of a healthcare system are working in those places and leaving, living in those communities. And all three of them are affected by, for instance, underlying structures that have uh, such as property taxes and values, et cetera, and zoning that has led to um, the economic viability of different places, which have direct impact impacts on the food environment and the wealth of people and their ability to afford fresh fruits and vegetables. And so I think from our perspective, if you don't understand the lens of all three things, you actually miss many of the assets that could be brought to bear to improve the health and well-being of populations. And so in communities that are doing this differently, and I'll give an example of Proviso Partners for Health, a community in Maywood, Illinois, which is a community that has up to an 80 percent um, school to prison pipeline in place where um, there has um, disproportional rates of chronic disease, both incidence as, and, and prevalence, uh, but also in terms of poor outcomes. You know, by mobilizing youth in schools to actually become growers in community gardens, in creating social catering businesses run by community members that help harvest the healthy food in by helping healthcare organizations see themselves as businesses that can actually um, buy the the food as well as schools, actually seeing, seeing their role as purchasers in addition to educators and healthcare providers. They've utterly changed the food system as well as the economic system of that area building a pipeline for a youth to become educated and develop additional skills that then become part of their cradle-to-career pipeline, adding increased wealth to the community while providing access to healthy fruits and vegetables. And this is a community that had gotten a grocery store, but no one actually bought food from the the grocery store. As a result, this food desert sort of continued until they thought of a different way of engaging hundreds of members of their community to be part of actually actively engaged in creating and using uh, a sustainable, healthy food system for their community. That's a great story. That's a great, that's great. Um, I know on a smaller scale, you know, many of us have experience working with, we have experience with communities that have done exactly those things, but taking those, really scaling them up, I suppose, is a key part of your work, isn't it? Absolutely. When you think about what it takes to go to scale, often we focus in on what are the things that that an evidence-based intervention will need, but don't pay enough attention to growth in the number of people, for instance, who are approaching, who have a new mindset or new skills to think differently about what it would take to get there. Uh, And I think a lot of what we do in, as we help 
programs like this go to scale is to think about what generative sustainability looks like from a lens, you know, as you scale up. So if you're thinking about scaling and sustainability of scaling from the beginning, you know that you need to build a pathway for the human beings who need to actually develop those systems for, for those to change, to, to scale along with the infrastructures and policies and payment environments to scale. To change in order to in order to support the new future that you're trying to create and scale, and so some of what we do is, for instance, in um, the example of that community, that community is now partnering with a number of communities around it that are interested in doing the same things. They've um, in partnership with one of the other uh, community uh, communities in the Illinois Public Health Institute. They've helped to pass the soda tax that helps sustain community initiatives. They are partnering with a collaborative of over 23 hospitals that are thinking about changing the way in which they do community benefits differently that are in a way that invests in local food systems in that area and addresses food security uh, and have are leveraging the assets of businesses, funders, and others in the local area to think about co-investing in, uh, in changing food systems in that area instead of each of them doing something that is, you know, maybe helpful, but it can be like a health fair that's, that's great for sort of general screening and maybe some really often serves as marketing uh, for that group. And instead, they're focusing together, bringing in the pieces of the puzzle, as we say, that each of the partners hold to create a, mu create a much bigger picture, a much bigger change that creates that sustainable change together. Are there major opportunities or trends you see in population health improvement sort of activities or on the horizon? What, what are they? I mean, you've been... You're, you're in a very unique position, pulling together collaborators from across the globe to create 100 million healthier lives. And um, obviously, you're also um, at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, so you see many things going on across the country. And what, do you, what do you see as those big trends that folks, our listeners, maybe should be thinking about and, and be aware of? I think that there is, uh, of course, a huge trend in people at least understanding and acknowledging that the social determinants matter. And increasingly, we're seeing major sectors embrace the need to improve the health and well-being of people as, that they directly touch, as well as the places in which those people live. And they haven't figured out yet how to operationalize that, but they at least are acknowledging the importance of a, of acknowledging that. So, um, you know, there there is a campaign that's going to launch led by the American Hospital Association, Institute for Healthcare Improvement, Stakeholder Health, the Public Health Institute, the Network for Regional Healthcare Improvement, for instance, which uh, along with a number of other partner organizations that helps healthcare systems to sort of to, that basically says this is what population health is to improve the health of your patients and then to improve the health of your communities and helps healthcare organizations figure out how to do that. Similarly, groups like HERO, the uh, Business Collaborative on Health led by the National Academies, groups like the National Alliance for um, Wellbeing uh, are all working with hundreds of employers to help them actually also embrace the idea that you need to improve the health of your employees and their families and you need to improve the health of your communities, that together these, this makes up population health. And I think that's something that's an important shift for people in public health to be aware of, that their people are much more ready for what we've always known is the case for a long time. And 
you know, how can we be sort of critical and helpful facilitators at those tables to help those who know that they need to do something but don't know how to help them to be um, ready to take action and to help them plug in and be part of effective efforts to doing that. And I think a, a second trend is actually the recognition that that things are much more globally applicable than one would ever have realized because people across the globe are experiencing the same challenges at the intersection of chronic disease and equity, for instance. And it's actually been uh, remarkable to watch very simple interventions done in spaces that aren't our traditional health places to work, uh, which rapidly scale to create changes. So lots and lots of people are working on childhood obesity and thinking about what children um, consume and what children uh, and what they're exposed to in their local food environment at schools and community, of course, as well as what they're exposed to in the media. Um, interestingly, there's this really simple innovation that a school teacher in Scotland developed called the Daily Mile, where she basically had her kids run uh, a mile a, a, a day on a dirt track outside their school, but, and she figured out five laps around this dirt track was a mile, which has now been translated to like essentially running for 15 minutes, where by the end of the year, that because she found that the kids who were running the, the Daily Mile, that those kids were more attentive in class, all the other classrooms adopted it. And by the end of the year, uh, there were no more kids that were overweight or obese in the grade. It was a simple, scalable intervention that could be done anywhere. We gave some lift to that, and it's gone viral. It's now spread all across Scotland to five or six other countries and has now come across the globe with over 3,000 schools adopting it, not based on here is a school district at a time or a state at a time that's changing, but based on sort of network spread of knowledge of what could be done. And as um, more and more of these schools are showing the evidence of 50% or more drops in overweight and obesity because this is such a simple, easy, scalable intervention that this is something that is spreading rapidly. And I think we're learning much more where we can leverage network kind of spread like this as and uh, make it easy for changemakers to find those opportunities, as well as where uh, com more complex changes are needed, such as, you know, uh, a change that has been able to improve birth outcomes by 50%, like the Pathways Community Hub, um, or incarceration outcomes by 75%. Those changes often require more complex system changes and uh, require more infrastructure to support scaling. And so I think... One of the things that, uh, in terms of trends, recognizing that there are actually innovations happening all over the globe that people have the opportunity to take advantage of is helpful, as well as to recognize that the measurement for how we measure population health is changing. So that increasingly, um, the National Committee for Vital and Health Statistics has recommended that we need to take an, a well-being approach to understanding population health and measure population health based on the well-being of people and, and the well-being of places. Places. And there's an uh, effort led across multiple federal agencies that embraces a number of both federal and non-federal groups that are looking at moving some of these measurements into adoption, even as we've been building some of the enabler mechanisms so that um, any uh, public health professional who's in your organization might be able to actually take a go to the community commons or check out Measure What Matters, be able to do their own data collection and or, tr or have a cross-sector coalition, have the tools that they're fingertips to be able to measure well-being, measure the specific things that they're doing in terms of chronic disease, and be able to see that across sectors in a place-based way. I love 
what you said about how, you know, we should be thinking about population health in terms of improving the health of people and, and places. And I think that's really important because, of course, for those of us who work in chronic disease prevention and are perhaps funded by federal grants or if you work in a health system and you're, you know, you may work on population health, but you're so, we're often so focused on sort of pieces of a person as opposed to a whole yeah. person or pieces of a place as opposed to a whole place. So. I, I love that line, and I'd love to borrow it if you don't mind. <laughs> <That's terrific>. Please do. <laughs> That's terrific. So, I mean, you've, you've covered a lot of ground there in terms of opportunities or trends. Were there any others that you wanted to share, or have we, have we covered them? I think we've covered them. I, I think that there's a, yeah, I think most people know that we're on a volume to value journey. And just, uh, despite all the noise that's happening now, in many ways, the noise has actually exacerbated um, the recognition that healthcare organizations and business and employers have that the value journey is even more important because, frankly, as people lose access to care, that suddenly becomes charity care, for instance, which needs to be managed well. It, as people think about um, risks of, of chronic disease growing and social supports being cut, that then becomes even more important to address those so that you don't end up medicating poverty. Because that's, I think, what we're at risk for doing if we aren't able to have the policy systems and programs available that can that can help to do that. So I think one of the things that is just worth knowing, and I, I say this to, to people because often people look at the national landscape and feel a little bit frozen by it because it's hard to know what to do in the context of ambiguity. And I think one of the most important things that we can do in the context of that ambiguity is to actually recognize the centrality of moving to a sustainable health and well-being system in this country that really embraces an understanding of what's happening as our population ages, as inequities uh, worsen, um, what would be needed to really support uh, improvement and to um, create the models for what that looks like and build a policy environment for those to scale. Yeah, well, and so if you don't mind, I'm going to maybe just skip to a question. I was going to wait until a little later to ask you, but since you've raised it, you know, I think it's really very true for people who work in the field, and I work at the state level. Um, I have colleagues at the local level, but the national landscape really does feel overwhelming, and, and this sort of wanting to be part of a whole around health improvement is it's a, a hard thing to find. It, but you, you've described some things that make it seem as if there's a place to get connected or a way to get connected to this broader effort. If people were really engaged in, in, in your ideas, is there some place they can go to get more of that information or to join the, the initiative? Yeah, absolutely. You, um, just go to www100, the number, mlives, L so 100mlives.org. Uh, and it's, it's free to join. Um, we say that working on equity is the price of admission. So every initiative has, you know, we, we all need to be taking an equity lens to our work. Uh, but the, the tools, resources, and a community of change makers that are really 
figuring out what this actually looks like and are celebrating stories of what it means in every political and geopolitical context that you could imagine are there together creating those changes. And I think it's really exciting, actually, to be part of a, um, a community of change makers that are creating solutions, you know, that, that show that it often the black and white nature with which we describe uh, often in, our, in the national dialogue of what's happening has very little to do with the commitment of change makers in every context to be able to do what's needed to improve the health and well-being of communities. I mean, I guess one more question or maybe a few more questions for you, but what about training? I mean, if people go to the website and learn about what what you're working on and are able to join, are there things, though, that you would also recommend in terms of training for our listeners if they really wanted to come up to speed on the collaboration kinds of skills you've talked about or, or some of the other things you've covered today? Sure. So, you know, one of the things that we have done over the last two years and really refined in our work with um, communities all around the the world is what are a core set of skills that are needed to help support people to do this. And we've sort of call, we call them communities of solution skills. Um, they're broken into five areas, sort of leading from within, which is really how do we become really good at um, reflecting it within ourselves about the ways we might need to shift our thinking and or that help us discover and ask open, um, honest questions, for instance. Um, leading together, uh, which is about the skills of collaboration uh, and teamwork, especially as you're learning to work across sectors and in partnership with uh, what we describe as people with lived experience, the people who are most affected by something. Um, leading for outcomes, which is at the skills of innovation, improvement, and implementation leading for equity, which is where you apply leading from within, leading together, and leading for outcomes with an equity lens. So checking your own implicit bias, for instance, and understanding your own implicit bias and your origin story of how you think about racism and equity as an example, leading together as in what does it look like then to partner to take on complex equity challenges and leading for outcomes in terms of how you take a data-driven approach to addressing equity uh, with an understanding of the systems that are underlying it that are creating inequity or perpetuating inequity. Um, and then leading for sustainability, which is really understanding what it looks like to grow, to spread and scale, and to think about sustainability, not just in terms of financial sustainability, but how you grow the people, the resources, the um, the environment, and the systems that are needed, and, and the change process itself in a way that creates long-term generative sustainability for a process as it scales. Starting in March to May, um, communities all across the country are actually going to be expanding a series of in-person training opportunities in uh, nearly 18 states. And if you um, want to look at where those are, you just go to 100mlives.org forward slash map. We actually recommend that everyone put themselves on the map of the movement so that they, people can find each other and get easy access to those. In addition to that, there will be a whole set of virtual offerings for people to be able to acquire these skills. Um, given that we're a global movement, we often, um, in this case, next week I'll be going to Guyana and um, leading some workshops there, but we don't rely on in-person training. We have uh, virtual offerings that build on things like MOOCs or other online offerings and help people who are a group of peers to connect and 
have a peer group coaching, for instance, that happens more locally. So we can give you uh, and send your members more information about that if they're interested. If they hit that join button and sign, then they can get direct access as to the announcements of those opportunities as well. That's terrific. And, and MOOC, by MOOC, for those who aren't familiar, you, you mean the massive online courses that are, that are out there? Because we believe that knowledge should be democratized, that everyone should have access to knowledge, um, regardless of where they are, their ability to pay. We've built something called the IHI Open School, which now over um, 200,000 uh, students, uh, youth professionals have taken advantage of to take over 3 million courses uh, that helps them learn to be more effective as change makers. And I think as we've expanded our efforts on helping uh, communities to improve, we're, we're bringing on a whole set of courses that are about improving and transforming uh, communities that will be released later this spring. That's great. Wow, 200,000 students and 3 million sort of learning opportunities. That's amazing. Is there, is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners? I mean, as, as we've discussed, many of them are public health practitioners working in public health departments. Um, any advice for them um, in addition to taking advantage of the open school and, and some of the other things you've discussed, is there anything else you'd want to recommend to them that they do or consider? I think that this is a moment of opportunity for public health practitioners to really step into this, not from a place of we are less than because we have less resources, but actually from a place of we have critical expertise to offer those who are just recognizing how important population health is. And I think our ability to not only understand the language that is happening in the field and how others are approaching it, but also our, our willingness to step forward and say, great, you want to work on population health. I'm here to help. How can we work together to improve the health of this community? I think this is the perfect moment for public health practitioners to step to step forward. And I think I'm really excited about the opportunity that's there um, when that happens, because I think I think we bring a wealth of decades-long expertise into how to improve the health of populations that is desperately needed. We're always um, looking for partners at every level. You know, communities that are working on growing their local regions are will be looking for partners at the regional level, and then we're always looking at national or global partners that are really have this broader vision of what it takes to create population health while being in equity and are willing to accompany communities on the journey. So if you're interested, contact us. Uh, we're at 100MLives at IHI.org or www.100MLives.org. That's, that's fantastic and a terrific reminder. Um, I do think, um, especially for public health professionals who are working in government, it, it can be confusing to figure out how to, how to help. And so I, I love the positive frame you've put on on that with the critical skills and the opportunity that those provide. Thanks so much for sharing that. This has been really very informative and, and such a pleasure to have the opportunity to learn from you and um, talk with you. I want to give you the last word, though. Is there is there just anything else at all that you want to share that we didn't cover yet in our conversation? I I don't think so, Jean. Uh, you know that the course on the Open School will be called the Community Health Accelerators Initiative. So keep your eyes and ears out for that. And then the the more in-person opportunities to learn will be called Regions of Solutions. So keep your ears out for that uh, if you're looking forward to being part of some of these opportunities. 
Dr. Stout from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and the Executive Lead with 100 Million Healthier Lives. Thanks so much for joining us today. Um, we hope to have an opportunity to talk with you again soon. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, if you'd like to know more information about 100 Million Healthier Lives, and I know I do, I'm going to be going to this website immediately, 100mlives.org, and that's M as in million. And they can be reached at 100mlives at ihi.org. And that's IHI as Institute Healthcare Improvement. Well, that's going to wrap up another episode of Health Yeah! I hope you found it informative and entertaining like I did. On behalf of NACDD and Gene O'Connor, thank you very much for listening.